What a privilege to come into the house of God and to think about His great love, the purpose He's given us. And we're just surrounded by beauty. Outside, it's beautiful Michigan morning. Inside, our ears are blessed. Our hearts are touched by the sweet music. And we have the privilege of studying God's Word in a lovely sanctuary. Just before I begin, I do want to make you aware of something that's going on that does not directly affect us, but since we're a sisterhood of churches, I want you to know about it. They are attempting in Detroit to acquire a full-power AM radio station, and it's a big mountain to move. And so they raised a little over $100,000 at their first rally, but they need about $1.5 million more. And... I don't know that it affects you, but since we believe that this gospel should go all the world, and that every nation, kindred, and tongue should tell, and because we don't have the ability to minister in Detroit, we have the luxury of ministering in, I hate to call it the Garden of Eden, it's not quite that nice, but compared to some parts of the blighted inner city, we are in a paradise. And so I just, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm inviting you to pray about it. I don't know what God might do. I don't know what he might do with all of us. But I want you to know this. They have not digitized the AM spectrum of the radio uh, channels. And when they do, that AM station is going to be phenomenally powerful and worthwhile. Right now, AM is kind of slightly off the spectrum of primary listening. But they will eventually digitize that AM spectrum, and it will be a phenomenal opportunity to preach the gospel. So I'm sharing it because we care about each other, and I don't know what we're going to hear about it. Maybe something at camp meeting. I don't know. But you know what? God's work is going forward. And by the way, I was sitting down with Jim Nibel this week, and we were looking at documentation. And when they go to describing who gets the low-power radio stations, which... There's about 10 of them between Indiana and Michigan. They describe two faith groups that are after them. We have about 10 as Seventh-day Adventists. They describe the Catholics and the, and the Seventh-day Adventists when they're listing denominations that want these stations. It's us and it's them. And in many respects, we share a common desire for lifting up Jesus and good family values. Our message goes beyond that. And I just want you to be aware that what's going on matters and makes a difference. And by the way, if you were a technical person and you wanted to learn a little bit about how these stations are running, please stop and see me afterwards or call the church office and communicate that. We would be interested in training you as a part of our team as we're running two low-power radio stations right now. Check out the website. Listen on Sabbath morning. You'll be blessed. Listen anytime you can. Let's pray. Lord, we are a mission-minded people. We want your love to flow through us, transforming us as it transforms the world. Now, Lord, we are opening our hearts to you, to your spirit, to your presence in the word. And we're praying that we would worship you through a life of obedience, willing, freely given devotion. Now, bless us, Lord, as we tackle a tough topic. In Jesus' name, amen. I entitled my message this morning, The Changing Definition of Misogyny and the Making of a Man. And I'm here to tell you, my wife does not like my sermon title. <laughs> What's a word like misogyny even mean? Sounds bad. 
Well, it is bad. It comes from two Greek words, meaning hate and woman. So a misogynist is a woman hater. And you hear the word used a lot these days. As a matter of fact, you're hearing the word more and more, which is what I want to talk to you about. When I was praying over what I should talk about, I realized I'm never here on Father's Day. I'm always at camp meeting. And that means that I don't naturally circle around the topic of manhood and fatherhood. And so this year, I felt impressed to take a few moments and talk about this because, in my opinion, the vacancy of the father in the lives of the rest of the family, especially the children, is a detriment that cannot be easily made up. For all you single ladies that are trying hard to be both mom and dad to your kids, praise the Lord, keep up, don't give up, continue mix them in with the uh, extended family and the church family, and may the Lord strengthen you and help you as you attempt to be both in the absence of a dad. But in 2012, Julia Gillard, the Prime Minister of Australia, went on kind of a, uh, depending on how you view it, some would call it a rant, some would call it an impassioned speech. In the midst of her speech, she looked across the aisle at her opposite in the form of political opposition, who had been critiquing one of her, one of her members of her cabinet. They both had made inappropriate comments, which we would call sexist or misogynistic. Whether they were misogynistic or sexist depends on your definition. But for a period of several minutes on a video that went viral on the internet, she pulled together several terms, and after that, the Australian Dictionary changed its definition of misogyny. And it started to include the word sexism or sexist. Now, if you're a sexist, you can have a strong prejudice against women, or you could be lumped in in the category of those who hold patriarchal views. Now, I want to remind you that as most conservative Christians who still believe in the inspiration of Scripture, it's very easy to lump evangelicals and other conservative Christians into the category of patriarchal, which is barely separated and not at all in the minds of some from the word sexist. Now, if sexist and misogynist mean the same thing, pretty soon you've taken those who believe in traditional roles and you've turned them into woman haters and society has just kind of gently broadened their embrace of all those that stand in the way of the new genderless roles. Now, when I came up with my sermon title, I was quite surprised to Google my subject matter and find all this information out. I had been thinking to myself, you know, the word misogyny is being used to encapsulate a lot more than it probably really means. I mean, something along these lines. And lo and behold, when I go ahead and start researching it, one of the first things that pops up is a Wall Street Journal article from 2012 on this very topic, the changing definition of the word. Now, it matters because you might respectfully disagree with the genderless agenda of modern feminism and secularism. You might actually believe that a father and a mother have complementary but different roles. You might actually believe that a woman ought to be paid the same amount as a man if she's doing the same job. These are things 
that should be. But you still might actually believe that God designed the people, though both representing His person and His image, to project different components of that image into the home, the school, the workplace, and society. It's exceptionally important for you to understand that what makes up this genderless agenda of the far left is an attempt to achieve something that they believe will open up the doors of creativity and a superior life. So away with traditional values and away with traditional roles, they're all inhibitors to a greater self-actualization. But I'm here to tell you this morning, We are not many years away from a reaction to the secular experiment that is creating more fractured homes, more broken homes, more broken people than at any time in American history. And it won't be too many decades from now, if that long, before the world will cry out that we need to get back to the things that created some semblance of normalcy in our society. Yes, indeed, the word misogyny, woman-hater, is enlarging itself to anyone that would stand in the way of an agenda that distinguishes between male and female. And these things are rolling forward. They are not something that is static. They're dynamic. Now, I was informed by uh, my good work associate, Pastor Joe, that he had been watching a series by Ken Burns, called American Lives. And there are two in that chapter that I watched on the um, women's suffragette movement. And they were most interesting. Um, What these women had to go through to get the right to vote. Uh, An amazing journey, some true courage. But along the way, the movement was, if you would like to say, connected to, some might say hijacked by, Elements and issues underneath that would propel it on farther down the way and even in its infancy to represent things that were beyond the abuses that were in society. So as I was dialoguing with Pastor Joe, he made a very excellent observation. He said that Ellen White was very careful about which movements she connected herself to. And I found it very interesting that the woman voting rights movement connected itself to the women's Christian temperance organization of which we find Ellen White being a strong supporter but after thinking about what uh, Pastor Joe said I decided just to research it a little bit and sure enough what I discovered in the Adventist Review is that Ellen White never attached herself to the women's suffrage movement And I found out part of the reason why. So reading out of an article written by Gerald Klingbill, surprisingly, Ellen White did not endorse or use her influence to promote the women's suffrage movement. As far as women's suffrage went, she personally supported the treatment of women as equals, but she saw no reason to spend time, money, and personal effort in a cause that would not directly build God's kingdom. This morning, I'm here to tell you that I believe his summary is good as far as it goes. But now watching, we're seeing that it's not just that it would not build God's kingdom. We can see and will see that many of the elements of the movement stand in direct contradiction to God's movement. 
God's pre-established kingdom, God's plan for the family, and God's plan for order in the home. This morning, I'd like for you to take your bulletin, and I want to read the Reflecting Christ statement in there. For as much as divided the Adventist church on issues of gender as of late, one thing stands unequivocally clear, that when it comes to the home, Ellen White never deviated for a moment from what we would call the Judaic Christian, or some might negatively call the patriarchal understanding, depending on how you define patriarchy. Some people would not dare define patriarchy in the ways that it's used disparagingly as a dominating, dictating, aggressive thing. I have no interest in that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe Ellen White teaches it. But let there be clarity. In regards to the home, she is, she repeats herself over and over again about the basic structure, the basic roles the beauty of harmony between husband and wife. But what's here in this bulletin is not a remotely grabbed little piece of data that, that flows in the opposite direction of her general tenor of statements. This is where it's at. And this morning, I'm here to tell you we have a crisis. I heard once anecdotally of a, of a greeting card company that offered greeting cards to all the prisoners on Mother's Day, and there was a real rush on the free offer. The prisoners all wanted their cards. But when it came Father's Day and the same offer was made, very few men wanted, or maybe I should say needed, a card. Because there are prison cells full of people who have either abandoned or were never taught how to grow up to be men. There are vacancies in homes where loving men ought to be holding down a beautiful statement and regular ordinary witness of the glory of God when the kindness of God's heart and the service of God's heart along with the proper structure and direction of God's heart is brought in to a little part of society. The home, Adventist home, page 211 to 212. The home is an institution of God. So if you throw out the Bible... If you believe that it itself is the original patriarchal document, it itself is what is in the way of societal advance, we've already got a problem. The home is an institution of God. If this is true, maybe the keys to a societal regeneration are to be found here. Indeed, they are. God designed that the, God designed that the family circle, father, mother, and children, should exist in this world as a firm. All members of the family center in the who. You seem a little weak there, friends. Do you have it in front of you? All members of the family center in the who? The father. So what happens when the father's gone? How about what happens when the father's vacant? How about what happens when the father's preoccupied? How about what happens when the father makes a profession of Christianity but does not have spiritual, emotional intimacy with God? If this family is centering in the father's leadership and there is no father present, mind, body, and soul, what can we expect in a society where the evil flow is a rampant, ravaging river waiting to sweep away the ones we love? If ever there was a day when we need dads, if ever there was a day when we need to teach manhood, if ever there was a day when we need to nurture the masculine, 
It's today. Our society finds itself awash in the agendas and the activism of feminism, and man has been at the whipping boy end of society's displeasure for about six decades now. We're a long ways from Mayberry. We're a long ways from Leave it to Beaver and My Three Sons. We're so far away that we can find home after home where the dad has been a playboy instead of a man and everybody's suffering because of it. If ever there was a day that we need to re-educate ourselves on what it means to be a man, it is today. If we are centering in the form of leadership in the home of the father, it's superbly important that the father is like God. He is the lawmaker, illustrating in his own manly bearing the sterner virtues, energy, integrity, honesty, patience, courage, diligence, and practical usefulness. The father is in one sense the priest of the household, laying upon the altar of God the morning and the evening sacrifice. So, what's it take to make a man? Well, I've been doing a little bit of looking into this, and I want to tell you, it's been quite an interesting journey. It starts very, very young. Now, I'm not going back to the chromosomal beginning, but I would like to read a little bit. This first quote is from Robert Stoller, psychologist. Infant boys and girls are emotionally attached to the mother. In psychodynamic language, the mother is the first love object. She meets all her child's primary needs. Girls can continue to develop on their feminine identification through the relationship with their mothers. On the other hand, a boy has an additional developmental task to disidentify from the mother and identify with the father. The first order of business and being of man, according to this analyst, is for the boy not to be a woman. You've probably never thought so much about this. There is a component of boyhood that is perfectly fine with mom. But somewhere along the way, the identity connection to masculinity has to take place. And it's the father's role to be active in that, not as Mr. Intimidating Macho, but as a man in his own making. He may not be the lumberjack or the builder or, or the cement worker or the oil well driller. He may be, instead of creative, more tender person, but that masculinity, no matter how it is exhibited, has to be meted up with a nurturing man to where the boy is not wounded in the early years connecting with masculinity. This identity connection must exist. Such a boy will then, for reasons about temperament and family dynamics, he's speaking now, this is Nicholas, this is Joseph Nic Nicolosi, that these boys who are wounded for reasons about temperament and family dynamics, will retreat from the challenge of identifying with masculinity. So instead of incorporating the masculine, when they have a wound from the masculine side, there is something that begins to develop that creates what is called a pre-homosexual tendency. They are rejecting the emerging maleness and actually developing a defensive posture against it. And here's the deal. A boy who has a wound with masculine identity and connects with the feminine side 
in puberty and adolescence when romantic love and sexuality come about will eroticize it. And thus you're on the road to homosexuality. And by the way, some studies say there's twice as many male homosexuals as females. Some say five times as many. Some say as much as 11 times as many. The reason is that a woman never has to disidentify with a mother, but a boy has to properly disidentify with the female to connect with the male. And the interesting thing is, is that along the way, this wound on the masculine side is not something that's jettisoned in an agender or non-gender experience. It's something that's longed for, which is why when it comes to personal ads for homosexual men, they are often look, looking for other men who are straight. And they're not bisexual. Most homosexuals have an, uh, men homosexuals are completely attracted to men. A salient father will interrupt his the mother-son symbiosis or this connection that they have because he instinctively senses that it's unhealthy. If his father wants his son to grow up straight, he has to break the mother-son bond. It's a proper bond to infancy, but not in the boy's best interest afterwards. In this way, the father has to be a model, demonstrating that it's possible for his son to maintain a loving relationship with this woman, his mom, while still maintaining his own independence. In this sense, the father should function as a healthy buffer between the father and the son. You see, it's very important, moms, when the father says, we're going to go do this, that you don't say, it's too cold or that's too hard. Hear me. It's a dad's job to create this kind of confidence and strength in the young man and to have those moments for bonding. Nicolosi goes on to say, for too many and for too long, professionals have maintained a patronizing disregard for parents who express concern about their children's sexual orientation. These professionals would rather ignore the child's symptoms, it seems, and focus on the parents' problems with unenlightened homophobia or heterosexualism. These components, these clinicians, when they take this approach, are replacing genuine helpfulness with a social agenda that conflicts with the values and the concerns of most families. This is because, Nicolosi says, the un one undeniable fact remains, most parents do not want their children to grow up as homosexual. It is a lifestyle choice that comes out of a gender identity distortion. It is a tendency, while not genetically directed, it is what we've discovered in time for all that's been written is there has never been found a genetic cause for homosexuality. We can see predisposition like we do for alcohol or food or anything else. You can find it for this. But with all of those things, there is still the potential for environment and proper bonding and proper gender identity to develop. They're all God's children. This is not a homophobic rant here. I'm talking with you about the development of gender identity, which, by the way, has gone long farther down the road than when the subject matter I'm reading, reading to you here was written. This, most of this was written about 15 years ago. But I've researched it out, and they've still not found a genetic link to homosexuality. So today in our society, it's not quite so easy to help a young man solidify their male identity. 
Young boys are not generally expected to go through initiation rites. Instead, with today's confused approach to gender issues, the teacher may tell them to embrace their feminine side or their androgynous nature. Or worse, their school counselor may encourage them to identify themselves as gay. Students of all grade levels may be encouraged by public school educators to try on various sexual identities. Some school gay-affirming programs even encourage them to experiment. In fact, some psychologists now believe that limiting ourselves to heterosexuality places an unnecessary construction on human potential. And when we overcome our fears of bisexuality, it will be said that we will discover creative new possibilities. Friends, we are living in an age of tremendous confusion. And the confusion is playing itself out. However, while most young boys and even more young girls will not have a gender identity distortion moment, it is important for us to recognize that the roles given by God are woven into the very biology of who we are. And even now, as a war is on about whether gender is biologic or self-determined, we find ourselves as Christians needing to be unembarrassed and unashamed, believing that what God instituted as the family with complementary and cooperative roles, but yet with different distinctions in role, is a good thing. And in the 30 years of pastoring, I can assure you, just like these psychologists have written, there is something to be found in the form of a genuine, happy, God-ordained, traditional construct to the home. You see, friends, what God ordained, He ordained for joy and pleasure and beauty. Now, I don't have time to go everything I have. I'm, I'm holding in my hand some very interesting documentation from uh, the University of South Carolina Scholar Commons about Victoria Woodhill, the first feminist presidential candidate Folks, I know why Ellen White did not embrace the feminist movement. Because it was associated with free love and spiritualism as well as women's rights. And she understood that those things aren't static. And that eventually when the box was opened and the genie was out of the bottle, that it was going to move us so far away from the God ideal and the happiness of the home that she could never for a moment lend one little iota of support, even though the Women's Temperance Organization, Christian Temperance Organization, joined ranks with them. Now let's go to the Scriptures. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. This is the story of the beginning. God used six days. Let's go to chapter 2. It says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. We understand that God made male and female in his image. My focus this morning is not to diminish female in one small bit, but my focus unequivocally is this, is that the great vacancy in all of society, except in one place, you find a great vacancy of male leadership in society except in one place. And that one place is the business world. And the feminists would say, there you go, that's the proof. 
But there's something about the business world that exempts itself from all the commentary because you see the man who owns the business, hopefully a good man, but whether good or bad, the man who owns the business calls the shots. And he's beyond the reach of societal incrimination, largely speaking. And I'm not looking for a moment to create an excuse for the immoral, inconsiderate, unloving, confident, confident, over-the-top confident, cocky, unchristian behavior of any man. But I'm here to tell you, it's time for the home, the church, the school, and the public place to take back the proper balance and place of a man who understands compassion, conviction, courage, and kindness. It's time for the Christian man to come out from behind the veil of the things he's either bowing down to in private or afraid of. It's time for an intimacy with God that creates a real sense of God-like confidence for proper leadership and proper servanthood in all of these places. I want to go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we come to the fall. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and she ate it. And she also gave it to her husband and he ate. I want to establish in the book of Genesis, this is the only book we're going to open this morning. I'll reference to a few others. But in this book, God holds Adam disproportionately responsible for certain things that happen. Abraham will be the same way. Eve was beguiled. Adam took the fruit out of her hands without any trickery or any deceit. And he said, Eve, you're more important to me than God. And he ate the fruit. By the way, friends, if there is a ploy that the devil is still working to destroy the home, it's when the man or the woman puts one or the other before God. If you want to be in a respectful, beautiful, loving relationship, you trust that relationship to God's hands. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, women, be like Sarah. Don't be afraid. You need to know what it's the right thing to do. A man without a proper counterpoint of accountability is a dangerous person. And the most powerful person in a married man's life should be his wife. But she can abdicate that role out of fear. And once she does, I'd like to know who the man has to confront his secrets, to confront his potential hypocritical hidden sins. While he walks about life looking upright and good, his soul is rotting. Who often knows it? It's the wife. But if she herself is not confident in Christ, as I spoke in the sermon last week, if she cannot precipitate a crisis, if she cannot create a moment of accountability, I pity the poor man because a man is certainly... He certainly has feet of clay and he needs somebody that can both love him and encourage him to faithfulness and hold him accountable at the same time. Eve is not the reason the race went, into the, went down the tubes. Adam is the one who took the race down the tubes. Adam is the one held responsible. Adam is the one whose sin we must be recovered from. Adam is the one who held the reins of choice and the locus of control. Adam is the one who decided that I'm not going with God, I'm going with her. And by the way, if they had stayed together, none of us would have been and would be in this situation. It's a posture of togetherness with complementary but different roles. Adam is held responsible. 
I want to transition now to the story of Abraham, of whose spiritual lineage we are. Turn over to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham becomes the next key man in the journey of faith, especially after the flood. We can learn a lot about manhood from Abraham. Abraham is a self-assured person. It's not that he's so sure of himself. It's the fact that he is in an emotionally intimate relationship with the Father. And his confidence is not in his own manhood. His confidence is in his identity in relationship to God. The first thing a man has to do, or a boy, to become a man is he has to learn whose image he is made. He has to learn of the one whose image he is made in. When you don't take the time to get to know the God whose image you were made in, how can you be what he's called you to be? How can you have the courage to stand up to the forces of evil arrayed against you, principalities and powers in high places? If there is one gross evil, if there is one great abomination of neglect, it is this, that men rush out into their day either pursuing something or running from something, and they don't stop to let God be God. Thus they are victimized by the adversary, and they are bound by their own desires. And what a day to be bound by your own desires. Money, sex, power, Lust and greed of all types. And there are all kinds of men that are dead men walking in our midst because they look like they're walking with God, but in their private lives, they're bowing down to their own evil propensities. Friends, you don't have the power to break that on your own. But glory, hallelujah, Jesus can break the shackles of self-chosen sin and addiction. There is not a man here today who could not be a self-respecting, kind, large-hearted, loving, generous, courageous person if they knelt at the feet of Jesus and said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. That's what Abraham did in chapter 12. God says it's time to leave. And I'm here to tell you, for some of you, it's time to leave. It's time for you to leave some of your buddies behind. It's time for you to leave some of the allegiances you've made. It's time for you to go on to higher spiritual ground and know God and godly men so that you can be a man that your own kids look up to and that the rest of society never have to find out there was some huge, gaping, hidden spiritual cancer growing on him. Every single man listening to me here today can be a man who respects himself because he has bowed low before the King of Kings and he can thus stand erect and fearless before earthly monarchs. This is the call of Abraham. God says, I want you to leave some things behind. You might need to smash your television like they did in that film, you know, produced there in the South by that Baptist church. There might be a sacred TV smashing moment or remote smashing moment. Or we might need to do like that woman in one of the meetings I was in here recently, my senior in age, but she said in front of a number of other people, I have gotten rid of internet in my home. Glory, hallelujah, turn off the septic that's flowing into your kids and your lives, heart and mind, and live in cleanliness. I got internet in my home once. Turned all my kids into continual shoppers. And I would imagine that it wanted to do a whole lot more than that. And it wasn't too long later until I got it out of my home. 
Because as Ellen White says, my children would grow up like calves in the stall. What does she mean by that? Well cared for, without cares, innocent, happy. I lived in 10 acres of woods. There was no reason for my kids to be sitting around looking at a screen when they could be outside building things and exploring and experiencing the God of creation, sitting in a field and listening to a bird. It's time for some things to go. Abraham was called to get up and get out of Ur. He left. There was a reason. Those cities were becoming increasingly evil. But you know, today you don't have to live in the city. The city found its way into our hearts and minds. And there are things in our life that need to be ejected. There will be no other way to be free. And by the way, when it comes to moral purity for a man, the Bible doesn't say stand around and fight. It says in the New Testament, you flee sexual immorality. You don't stand around to see if you're man enough to overcome it. You say, I'm out of here. And that means your wife can look at every device you have. That means you never clear the history off your computer because you don't need to. That means that every... <laughs> that means there are no secret chapters. None. You want to be a man who's strong? You go away from the places where the Satan's gotten you bowing down. And you admit. You don't deny. You admit. And it'll be an awkward admittance when you have to say to the person you love the most, I really hate to tell you this about myself because one thing a man wants is to be respected. And sometimes the things he has to say he knows are sealing a death warrant on some measure of respectability. But you know what? Honesty is the journey to recovery. It starts with you. It gives courage to the one you're talking to, even though it wounds them to hear what you have to say. But that honesty is the journey to discovery because in effect you're saying, I will be accountable. So you're going to know. And from now on, if you want to ask, ask. Go, the Lord said. And he went. Let's go a little bit farther in the story. Turn over to chapter 13. You want to become a man? Then you can't be greedy. Lot was an individual who understood very early on his financial security as well as his physical security was a gift of God. And so when he takes his nephew to be like a son... And his nephew is blessed under the shadow of his spiritual tree. And they have too many animals for everyone to be watering in the same place and feeding in the same field. Abraham, as a true father, as a true man, understands that he should do what is noble and right. Now, Lot should have done what is noble and right too. And he should have said, no, uncle, you pick. Lot, in the midst of a man of integrity and generosity didn't get it. He looks down at the plain, which was like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, that's where I want to be. And he goes down there. Not only did Sodom and Gomorrah look like the Garden of Eden, but it had gone so far from the holy behavior that was in the bounds of the Garden of Eden that Lot's own family was carried away by the arrogance, the hubris, the lives of ease and pleasure. But if that's what Lot wants, Abraham's going to give it to him. 
There's some of you listening to me here today who have learned how to pinch every penny until it bleeds. And sometimes it bleeds, it bleeds shame on the cause of Christ. You're overreaching. You act like you've got to be your own financial security for the future. God's men learn to be generous. They work hard and they give freely. It doesn't mean that they let everything flow through their hands, but it does mean that they don't let the idea that their identity is tied up in how big a house they own or how fancy a car or whatever accumulating they can do, their identity is not their stuff. A godly man understands what John the Baptist said to his disciples when they said, everybody's following Jesus. And John the Baptist said, a man can only have what God gives him. And while thrift and hard work and frugality are important, God's people, God's men, aren't tied to the superficiality of their stuff or the size of their bank account. There are people out there that are chasing money like, they're chased, like there was no clean water left on the earth and they had to get every last little drop for themselves. Go ahead, like Wesley said, and make all you can, but do it so you can give all you can. If there's a generous person on the face of the planet in Abraham's day, it's him. And after he goes and rescues his nephew from the kings of the plain, he won't even take, he says, I don't even want a string off the sandals from this booty because I don't want you saying, you made me rich. Rich is not the goal of a godly man. Character, discipleship, nurture, witness, faithfulness, these are the directions of a godly man. But Abraham makes a few mistakes along the way. He is the man of faith. God takes him out one night and shows him the stars. And while Abraham has no children and he's not a young man, when God says, look at the, look at the star-studded black velvet above you, your children will be more than this. Abraham says, yeah, I believe you'll do that. He goes for 10 more years without a child, and then he gets a suggestion. Now, I'm here to tell you, ask my work associates, I've told them if there's one person in the world they should ever listen to, one, it's not me. I've told the, the, the individuals I'm working the closest with, if there's one person in the world you should ever listen to, it's your wife. No amens? <laughs> when you've got a Christian wife and she bows low before the king of kings so she can stand up to you if she needs to, You've got the person who loves you the best and knows you the most. And she's the safest one for you to recorrect course on and maintain a little bit of dignity. Maybe a lot. Now, if you're married to a godless woman, you still ought to do a little listening because even a godless woman isn't going to get it wrong all the time. <laughs> but when you're married to a godly woman, she ought to be the first place you go for advice. Because I'm here to tell you, Abigail saved David from a horrendous mistake. And how many other unwritten stories are there of wise men who understood they didn't have a monopoly on wisdom? And by the way, I practice what I preach. 
You tell me I preached a good sermon, so what? My wife tells me I preached a bad one, I'm going to go back and look at what I did wrong. Ten years without a baby. So Sarah, who's not perfect either, gets herself in the record books a little bit like Eve with a bad suggestion. Take Hagar. Now, personally, I think the Hagar, the name Hagar is not the most beautiful, phonetically sounding name in the world, but I suspect she was one of the prettiest women you had ever seen because she probably was given by one of the Egyptians in his forays down to the south. And while the name Hagar may not rest beautifully on the ears of most Westerners, my guess is that Hagar rested beautifully on the eyes of Abraham, and it was a bad suggestion, which it wasn't too terribly hard to take. But when it was all said and done, God and Sarah held Abraham responsible for a bad decision. And later on, some 13 years later, when the boy is big enough to make fun of Isaac, and Sarah says, he's got to go, and his mom goes with him. God said to Abraham, she's right, you do it. When you, when either of the spouses lose that emotional, spiritual connection with God, nobody has the courage to say, I'm sorry. Nobody has the courage to say, that's wrong. Nobody has the courage to suffer because suffering hurts. And wouldn't we all rather be in one big denial journey together? Not me. You agonize at times. You suffer. Why? Because you love and you made a commitment. And that's what it takes to make it to the other side. Yes, God holds Abraham responsible. It is his fault. We learn as we make through the journey that Abraham is a mediator. He knows how to pray. God makes a covenant with him. And then God tells him what he's going to do. And Abraham says, you wouldn't wipe out that city for 50 people, would you? And God says, of course not. Well, could we keep talking about this? Because Abraham's really processing. He's learning about God. As if he has more compassion for the five cities of the plain than God does. Well, let me ask you. You wouldn't wipe out that city for 40 people, would you? God says, never. And when this whole thing is all and done, not only will God not wipe out anybody for whom there's hope, but he will send angelic beings down there to take by the hand and almost drag them out of the city so that they could cling to a little lifeline of hope and still be a part of the promises made to Abraham. Amazing. You're too busy to get to know God. You're too busy to get to know yourself. You're too busy to get to know your spouse. You're too busy to get to know your kids because you need to know them in Christ. They have journeys they need to make and they need to sense that you are not only strong as a man, but you're safe. Self-control. I can understand why some of these feminist movements found so much fervor. Women beaten and taken advantage of and denied opportunity. But none of this could ever be attributed 
to the kind of patriarchy that the Bible describes because God's plan, although the man is in the home as the center, God's plan is for the man to love his wife as he loves himself. And there's plenty of men out there who aren't living like that. So friends, let this message this morning be a call to examine yourself, men, and see if you be in the faith. Because it's easy to walk around and say, especially in this community, because there's so much cultural Adventism in this community, that people are being captured, destroyed, and enslaved by an absence of the legitimate identity in Christ. Finally, at the end of his life, or towards the end, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has the test. He's failed other times. He's lied. You've lied? Well, I hate to say it, and I'm glad to say it. Take cheer. Unfortunately, a number of the patriarchs had a problem with telling the truth, too. Don't be overly discouraged. Your fear can drive you to act just like them. And if it has, follow them to the cross. Follow them to Jesus. Be honest and start over. What's it take to make a man? Somebody who can deny himself, who can say no. Yesterday I was on the internet searching. I was at the MIT website. Now, mind you, I really don't think MIT has a vested interest in corrupting me. But as I scrolled down through all of their articles, the first of which I had read, I came across pornographic imagery. It wasn't video. It was just multiple pictures of the same inappropriate still. Scroll on or turn it off. But don't linger in front of the image. It's like that seductress woman looking to draw you in. What does the end of Abraham look like? He's not done being a dad. He knows that for his son to be a good man... He needs a godly wife. And so he calls Eliezer in. And he says, put your hand under my thigh. In other words, Eliezer, come get close. Now I want to tell you, if I was Eliezer, and I had to go up and put my hand under Abraham's thigh, I'd be looking right in his face. Don't take a wife for my son from amongst the people of this land. You promise me that you'll go back to my household and you'll find someone who believes in God and you'll find a wife. You'll look for a wife there. What if I can't find one? Then you'll be released from this vow, but whatever you do, don't take my boy back there. You listen. Seventh-day Adventism is slowly sliding backwards when it should be going to higher ground. And you know why? A failure of leadership. We need moral, respectable, 
kind, courageous, convicted men who will commit themselves not only to their self-interest, including their family, but to the larger family in which there is often an absence of men and to society. I'm going to tell you one thing before I'm done. It's not easy to be a man, but it is despicable to not be able to respect yourself. God made you men with the ability to exercise some emotional independence and say when everybody else is falling apart around you, this is the right thing, we're going to do it. I talked to one of the fathers not long ago who said sometimes he makes a decision with his wife and the kids grumble, but they do it anyway. Gave me such courage. Give me some more men who know what the right thing is to do and will hang on until the feelings change. Give me some more men who will teach their boys to grow into manhood who someday will say, Dad, I want to be just like you. They may not say it when you're confronting them in their life of self-indulgence, which the society affirms. But you don't, and you can't, and you won't. There's two things that should shape your manhood. One is duty, and one is destiny. You figure out what the destiny is, the duty will start lining itself up very clear. The ultimate man, Jesus Christ, who being in the very form God, didn't consider it robbery to call himself God because he was. He knew who he was. That's why he could put the towel on his waist when none of the other disciples would do it. That's why he could go and stoop down low in a system of caste where he's at the bottom. But I want you to know, when Peter says, you won't wash my feet, Jesus didn't back off and say, that's okay. He said, no way. If I don't wash your feet, you're not with me. And when Peter was offended, not too many hours later, when he was told by Jesus that he would be denying that he even knew Jesus, Jesus didn't back up and say, okay, you're right, I'm wrong. The effective leader, in this case, the effective male leader, was made a little bit different than a woman and was made to embody enough emotional independence to say, because this is right, this is what we will do. And as the book Education, page 57 says, stand for the right though the heavens fall. Ladies, you do have something to do in all of this. It's as if our scripture reading couldn't help but say it at least more than once, so it says two times. Remember this. And if you're in doubt, go back to 1 Samuel 25 and read it again. Where 15 times Abigail says to a, a madman named David, wounded and insecure, you don't really want to act like this, do you? Ephesians 5, if you didn't get it on the first reading, the second reading makes it very clear. Respect your husband. Now, you can't respect everything he does. Of course, he can't respect everything anybody does, even you. 
But the general tenor of your relational posture cannot be to deny him what God gave him, which is proper leadership in the home. If you do this, you are shooting him and yourself in the foot. But while you're doing it, you stand strong and erect for Jesus for what's right too because sometimes he may lose his way. I want to say my mother did a fantastic job of this. And I want to thank my father for giving me the time and being a safe person for my maleness as a little boy to connect with his maleness as a man. Maleness is not exactly the same as femaleness. And while the world tries to push us off Niagara Falls and new gender identity, Christ people are going to anchor down on the rock and say, with due respect to all, with compassion for all, male and female, he made them. And we will grow and nurture in the unique complementary and cooperative togetherness. No, I'm never here on the second Sunday or second Sabbath, but I'm here today. And I'm here to tell you, the church has as bright a future as your home does. And your home has as bright a future as you want to let Jesus make it. But don't expect God to sweep down and do for you what he leaves in your hands to do something with. He said, I'll listen to you like there's nobody else on the face of the planet, but why don't you have time to get to know me, the creator, redeemer, restorer of God? So I'm almost done, except for this one thing. I will not and I cannot preach a sermon like this and let any young man or any man in this congregation sit on their laurels after they've been called to rise up to higher ground. I want everybody here listening to me to know that it's time to rise up, O oh man of God. God's kingdom is waiting. The kingdom at your house, the kingdom in your business, the kingdom amongst your friends. We're not playing a game. This is about eternal loss for some. Nobody in my home have I contended with more than my three sons. But I'm teaching them and largely have done it for better or for worse to be men. This morning... There's a whole generation that needs a loving witness from godly men. So I'm calling the married men first to make a decision. And the decision is this. If you're practicing secret sin, that before the sun goes down tonight, you'll get the kids with somebody else and you'll have time to go for a walk and pray before you do it. But you'll, you'll find your wife and you tell her, I want to be a true 
man of God. And to do that, I'm going to have to open some things up that I've hidden away. I'm calling you to do it. I'm calling to those of you that struggle with misprioritization of time and money to say, you know what? My family will not be perpetually neglected as I create financial security or significance for myself. I'm calling you to recognize your current obligations before you chase some future self-actualized potential. Yeah, you're going to let that opportunity go by because the opportunity with your boy, you're not getting back. Or your daughter. I'm calling those of you whose life has been ruled by fear to make decisions that the God of heaven could nerve you to actually have some convictions and follow them. Most of all, I'm calling you to a full and complete surrender to Jesus Christ. This is not a good age for cowardice. <laughs> if ever there was an age we needed a few good men, it's today. How do you become one? Don't read a book except this one. And read it every day. And give God permission to apply it in any way. And may the world rise up and call you blessed. And may the world be a better place because the God of creation and the God of redemption is the God of restoration for whatever chapter you're in. It's up to you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we put people, things, or desires before you. Forgive us when we've shed the sense of the cross in our lives and any idea of potential suffering as we say no and disengage from things of the world that we've learned to love, things that are in the wrong place. The home suffers, the church suffers, society suffers. Forgive us, Lord, when we've not had enough courage and confidence that if you say go, that's the way to go. Forgive us for neglect and forgive us for obeisance, for bowing down and worshiping at the gods, the altars of this age. And I'm praying, Lord, make us like the godly men through the ages who could say they were sorry because they could hear the voice of truth and in their inmost beings they were true like a needle to the pole. These are my brothers. They are my friends. And clearly, Lord, today you've marked out that they be called to higher ground. So now, Lord, we can only go there with Jesus. 
we don't have the power to go there on our own. We're victimized by generational sin and current choices. I'm just praying now, Lord, set us free. Set us free. And may we not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, you are still the ruler of this world and you can be and long to be the ruler of our lives. Even so, Lord Jesus, may it be. In your name we pray, amen.